Yeah, so that's a little weird introduction. I want to say buongiorno or something like that. And uh, done intentionally by our marketing team. Great, because we're going into a series, Elisha, Things Get Weird. So, Ron, that was a little bit of a weird dance that we just did there together. But anyway, that's great. So, we are in a new series. Uh, you, you want to have your Bibles open to uh, 1 Kings chapter 19. That's where we're going to get eventually. If you don't know where that is, third of the way into the Old Testament, look it up on your phone. You'll find it quickly. Or if you find the first and seconds, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, it's right there. You'll find that. But that is where we're jumping in. Last weekend, Pastor Jeff uh, let you know we we're finishing off the four year marathon through the book of Romans. We're now starting into a new series over the next eight weeks, take us up to Easter, on the a biographical Old Testament study of a character named Elisha. So that's what we're going to talk a lot about today. It's also a multiplication weekend, and you go, well, what's that about? And it is a couple times a year in the spring and the fall, we want to take a little bit of time to talk about the bigger picture of what God's calling us to as a church family and the whole area of leadership development and multiplying, specifically raising up new ministry leaders who will go out and plant churches that we can send away to go start new congregations. And we're going to talk a little bit about what has been happening, what we see happening in the future, and then tie these two, two things together. So it's really two messages in one, which will take us just about 95 minutes. So if you could get a lunch hour reservation at 2 o'clock, you'll be there in time uh, for lunch. Anyway, that's where we're jumping in. I'm only just partly joking. Yes, that's it. Uh, it's the mandate, the privilege that I was given, actually. Uh, really, it is a privilege at this season of my life to be able to step into this. Uh, when we were in the interview process about a year ago and meeting with Jeff and some of the elders, and Jeff kind of looked across the room and he goes, I think you've got a couple good years left in you in these sunset years of your life. Uh, could you come and lead this multiplying strategy? So that's, it's my job. So that's why I get to talk about this and then also introduce you to this character named Elisha. It's a challenging text and it's got challenges for us and I hope first and foremost for every single person individually in the room. Every man, woman, boy, and girl who listens to the message, but also there are challenges for us corporately as a family together, as a body of things that we do together, and we're going to pick up both those themes, but the question is this, that we would live our lives on purpose. And so what I want to do is just prod you, poke you, challenge you, encourage you, remind you, uh, somehow get you thinking about this incredible gift that you have been given called the gift of life. You have been given a gift. And you also then have a God-given responsibility to live your life in a way that would give glory to God. And so the overarching question that I'm framing this message around is this, what are you going to do with the life that you have been given? Some of you might be familiar with a, a best-selling book for like last three decades, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, uh, Stephen Covey. Uh, in one chapter in that book, he says, imagine this. Take some time to just sit back with your cup of coffee and imagine that you're attending a funeral. And so you walk into the funeral home and you hear the gentle music of the organ playing. You see the flowers and you get to a service that in this case, sort of an old school service, it's an open casket service. And there's a, a casket at the front of the room and you make your way down the aisle and you realize you know a lot of these people in this room. You, you sense the love and the care that is in this room and the, the celebrations that's going to happen for this life that has been lived. And as you get up to the casket, you look down and you're looking back at yourself. And you realize this is your funeral service. Three years from today. 
Then you sit down and you look at the order of the program and there's going to be four different types of people speaking. Of course, some of your family, extended family, close family, some friends will speak who just knew you as acquaintances, some people that worked with you over the years in the marketplace. And then there's a couple people from your church or that community organization that you volunteer with. And so four different sort of mini eulogies are going to happen. And the question is, what would you want to hear said three years from today at your funeral? And the chapter is entitled, Begin with the End in Mind. So if you go to the end and you say, this is what I want my life to be looked back on, then you start building your life today to get there. Now, obviously, you see the application, both individually, when the history books are written, when your eulogy is read, which unless Jesus returns, one day somebody's going to be reading all of our eulogies. What will be said about our lives and when the history books are written on the life of the church? So 50 years from now, if Jesus tarries and they look back on Northview in the 2020s, what would they write about this decade in the life of this particular church family? The question matters. And I want to frame the discussion around a handful of scriptures to just kind of prime the pump and to get you thinking along these lines. So just four scriptures to just prime the pump. Psalm 90 says this, our days may come to 70 years or 80, if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, and they quickly pass, and we fly away. As I was reading, I was reminded of my mom's 80th birthday, which is like a, nine years ago already. At her 80th birthday party, she had written a little poem to read to the family, and basically the gist of the poem was this, you see me on the outside as an old woman, but on the inside I still feel like I'm 29. And then she went on to say all the things that her mind tells her that she can still do, but her body says, no, you can't. And this interesting thing of how eight decades had just flown by in her life. Psalm 39 says, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you've made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. James 4, listen, you who say today or tomorrow we're going to go to this or that city and spend a year there and make some money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And one more, Ephesians 5, be careful then. How you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because we know the days are evil. One life to make an impact, and preparing, I thought of a plaque, I don't know if it was a plaque or a poster or a photo, I just remember the words on the wall in the kitchen growing up as a kid. My folks had this sign up on the wall, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And as a little kid, you know, you glance at that at the breakfast table or whatever, and it just soaks into your mind. I got one life to live, and what, what matters is what happens for Jesus. And so the big picture is where we're headed today is this thought that you have one life, and we should make it count, and not just in the Budweiser old beer commercial, go for the gusto. You know, it's not just about making it count for your own fun, your own pleasure, your own glory, your own fame. We only go around once. I got to get my bucket list. We hear lots of that in our culture. But to make it count for the glory and fame of Jesus, or in the provocative words of John Piper's book, don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. And so as we start a new series, a biographical study in the life of Elijah, the first challenge, of course, is that we're jumping into the middle, the 39 books of Old Testament history that cover thousands of years. 
Now, for those of you who grow up in the church, maybe not a big deal because these names are familiar. You know the stories. You know exactly the piece of history where this falls in. If you didn't grow up in the church, like many of you, you might be lost already because you're going, Elisha, Elijah, like who are these people? It's like you jump into the middle of the full-length extended trilogy of Lord of the Rings, 11 and a half hours long, and you somehow start it in the middle. And there's Gollum and Frodo and Gimli and Legolas and all these names. And you're like, who the heck are these people? And so if you didn't grow up in church and then you come to church on a weekend like this and you're like, great, this is typically what Christians do. They talk about people that none of us know who they are. Elijah and Elisha. Who are these two guys? And so let me just give you the crash course, just set up. This is an introductory weekend to the whole series. The stories that we're going to look at in the next eight weeks took place in 9th century BC, 800 years before Jesus walked the earth. And Elijah and Elisha were two men who stood in a long line of recognized, quote unquote, men of God, prophets, men who had been uniquely called by God to speak on his behalf. And you go, well, now that's weird. That's very interesting that men and women were given the ability to speak the words of God. How did we know they were true prophets? How do we know they're speaking God's word? Well, the Old Testament gave two specific tests. And the first one was really easy. An Old Testament prophet, if they were truly speaking for God, was 100% accurate 100% of the time. You knew they were speaking for God because every word they spoke came to pass. And so if you were skeptical, if it was a weird word, you're like, okay, just wait. It might be months, it might be years, but eventually, like in Isaiah's case, hundreds of years would pass the prophecies about the Messiah, but we see them. It's why Matthew wrote, this is to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah. They come to pass. Secondly, Old Testament prophets were given, most of them, special manifestations of the Spirit. They were given the ability to see the Spirit work in miraculous ways. Not, not always, not at the drop of the hat, but God entered their life in miraculous ways. One example in our context is Elijah. He's having an argument with King Ahab, who was an evil king, a wicked king, and he says, just so you know this king, that God is actually on my side, that I am speaking for him, we're going to give you a sign. It will not rain in Israel for three years. There will not be a drop of rain. In fact, there won't even be dew in the morning. It is going to be bone dry drought for three years until I call to God so that you know this God is real. And for the next three years, there is not a drop of rain. Miraculously, God answers. So today, we're looking at Elisha's life. And Elijah is right up there in the rock star category, and Elisha is his understudy. He travels along, assists him, and then ultimately becomes Elijah's successor. So today, we are in 1 Kings 19, and we're looking at his, quote-unquote, his call. So let's read it together. It's just three verses. You can follow on. It's on the screen or your Bible's open. We're going to be looking back into chapter 18, so you might want to have your Bibles open. But 1 Kings, these three verses. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him, and Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I'll come with you. Go back, Elijah replied, what have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back, took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his attendant. Okay, that's the text, just three verses. 
And immediately, when you start reading it, you realize we're jumping into the middle of the story. Because the first words are this, so Elijah went from there. And you're like, he went from where? Like we're in the middle of a story. So you need to know the backdrop to this. Elijah went from there. Well, he went from the backside of the desert, standing off in a cave, having an argument with God. That's the context. The Coles notes on this are that Elijah is battling the greatest depression of his ministry years. And if you read the previous chapter, you go, I don't get why Elijah is so upset in this particular context because he's just coming off one of the greatest spiritual victories of his entire ministry, the showdown with the prophets of Baal on top of a mountain made out of caramel. It's an amazing story. As a little kid, when I heard about a mountain made out of caramel, I was listening. I was like, I want to go to that mountain. This is awesome. It's filled with sarcasm and mocking. It's one of the greatest sermons Elijah ever preaches. If you go back to chapter 18, verse 21, you see him basically saying to the people of Israel, would you make up your mind? Would you finally make up your mind? Would you stop wavering between two opinions? Would you stop limping along between two attitudes? You got one foot in the world, one foot in the church, one foot in the kingdom, one foot in idol worship. You're waffling. Saturday, you're living one way. Sunday, you're living another. Make up your mind. If God is God, then follow him. If your idols are God, then follow them. But would you make up your mind, he says. And he goes, you know what? Let's put this to the test. Let's climb that mountain of Carmel. Let's take the 450 prophets of Baal, and here's the deal. You build an altar to your God, I'll build an altar to my God, and whichever God answers with fire from heaven, no matches involved, miraculous fire from heaven, that God is the true God. And it gets really fun, because the 450 prophets, they build their idol, they begin to dance around, they cry out to their God, and and Elijah, I, I love this guy, he starts to mock them. He starts to laugh at them. He says things like, you know what, shout louder, he's probably on vacation, Uh, he's probably asleep. You need to wake him up. He literally says he's probably out going to the bathroom. He went to relieve himself. You got to give him some time to get back. Like it's mocking. And finally he's like, okay guys, you've had enough. It's my turn. Steps up. They build an altar, 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Slaughter an ox, cut it and put it on. And then he does this crazy thing. Remember it's three years of drought. There's not a drop of water in the land. And he says, take 12 barrels of water. Not a drop of water in the land. It's drought time. Where did they get that water? Why would he waste water during drought? Dump 12 barrels of water over this sacrifice. It fills the trench around it, and he calls out to God, and whammo, fire falls from heaven. And every little kid's going, yes, my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. You know, his little kids were like, this is awesome. God shows up. But in the text, you see it as well. The people in verse 39, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God, and revival's breaking out. And then they do a very Mennonite thing. They take all the prophets of Baal, and they kill them. (laughs) And to top it off, this is not only the day when God sends fire from heaven, but it's also the day when he turns back on the heavenly tap. And Elijah says, so just so you know, one more sign on this day, not only fire from heaven, there ain't been rain for three days or three years. Ahab, you better get back home because rain is coming. And Elijah gets on his knees and he starts to pray. And sure enough, a torrential rainstorm falls, one of his greatest victories in his spiritual ministry. And in the next chapter, Elijah is in the darkest depression of his life. The very next chapter, we find him off 
grumbling under a broom tree, hiding from the rain. And he's basically saying, God, why don't you just kill me? I'm the only one left. There's nobody else who loves you, follows you. Lord, just take me home now, Lord. Take me home. And I love the Lord's response to Elijah because basically what he says, go to sleep. That's what God says to him. He does. Like, read your Bibles. You need a nap, buddy. You're exhausted. Just take a nap and eat something. He goes to sleep, and when he wakes up, an angel is there with a fresh-baked loaf of bread, angel food cake, (laughs) a bottle of water. He eats, and then the Lord's like, go back to sleep. Have another nap. Have another snack. And after two of these sleeping and eating, the Lord's ready to talk, and he's like, Elijah, talk to me. What are you doing out here? And Elijah begins to complain, I'm the only one left, Lord. You might as well kill me. Take me home. Jezebel's after me. She's going to chase me down. And I love the Lord's response. If you read the context, and it's in the, at the end of chapter 18, he goes, Elijah, I just need to tell you this. You're not alone. There's 7,000 others just like you, Elijah. And sometimes some of us need that encouragement. We are not alone. You might feel you're the only one in your trade, in your place, in your neighborhood, in your family, in your whatever. And the Lord goes, no, no, no. I got 7,000 others like you. There are people out there who have not bent their knee to Baal. There are people out there who passionately share the same faith you are. You're not alone, Elijah. And so I need to send you to do some commissioning. And so then we get this context in chapter 19, 15 and 16. He basically sends him out to commission him. He goes, go anoint Haziel, a new king who's going to reign over Aram, and go and anoint Jehu, a new king who's going to reign over Israel, and then anoint Elisha, who is going to follow you, who's going to be your successor. And so then we get to the context. We get to chapter 19, verse 19, and that is all the backdrop that brings us up to here. And so now you can set the timer on the message. Now we begin. It's the first time we meet Elisha. He's never mentioned in the scriptures before this, and we don't know a ton about him. We, we see in the context the hometown that he came from. We get his father's name, and we get his occupation. He's a farmer. But if we put on our biblical detective hats, there's a lot of other details. There are some pieces of info that are, are pretty much in the obvious here and some others that we can imply. He must have been familiar with Elijah's ministry because when Elijah comes along and throws his cloak over his shoulder, he knows enough to know what that symbolic commissioning might mean. Now, I don't know if we're wandering the hallways here and Pastor Jeff takes off his jacket and throws it over the shoulder of somebody if we know that that's a commissioning. You're the next lead pastor. I don't know if it still means the same thing. Elisha and Elijah knew what was going on here. He was familiar with the ministry. We also know that he was quite young. And you go, how do you know that? Well, over the next eight weeks, you'll see it. He was probably a teenager. He might have been in his early 20s. We know it because at the end of his life, which we'll get to in eight weeks, when he dies, if you trace the kings, so Jehu is being anointed as king right now. If you take Jehu's reign and all the kings in his lifetime, it's 50 years later when he dies. So he had to be young enough that he has 50 years of life ahead of him. So probably a teenager, maybe in his 20s. Not everybody lives as long as Pastor Ron. Like Ron was commissioned in his 30s. He's been serving for 50 years. He's a young 80, but not everybody ages that well. So he's young. We know this. We also know that he comes from a well-to-do family. He's a rich boy. How do you know that? I think you're stretching it. Well, he's behind 12 yoke of oxen. A farmer in that day probably would have had two or three oxen to yoke together. 
He's got 12 yoke of oxen. That means at least 12 pair, 24. Obviously, he's not plowing alone. He's behind the 12th yoke. Now, they could have been yoked in teams of four and maybe six. So there might have been four or six teams of them. There might have literally been 12 teams and he's following. He wasn't in that field alone. There was a whole tandem group of plowers going down that field. It's like if you've been out on the prairies during cultivation season and you see the rows of cultivators following, or particularly during harvest season, when you see the combine harvesters lined up in tandem, six or eight of them on the field in these wide swaths. This was not just a little garden rototiller. It was a wide cultivator. In other words, the family business was doing well. He came from a comfortable home, probably a wealthy home. He's in charge of the plowing. He's out there with his crew carrying on those other 12 yoke of oxen. This is a bit of the backdrop. We see and we hear his loyalty to his family. First, thing, first things out of his mouth are, I need to talk to mom and dad. I got to kiss my mother and my father. I'm, I'm ready to follow you, but I need to go home and say bye to mom and dad. And then finally, and we're going to come back to this a little bit later, we also see his willingness to count the cost to make great sacrifices for this call. So that's the text, three verses. And for our time this weekend, I want to camp on one simple theme, and it is this theme, that God is always and God is still. God is always and God is still in the business of calling people into his service. And if there's one takeaway that I've been praying about this week for every person who hears this message is that you would simply ask this question personally, what am I doing with this life that God has given me? Whether you're a teenager or whether you're in your 90s, what are you doing with this life that God has given to me? Am I living my life with a sense of God-given calling and purpose? And it's a massive topic. Dozens of books have been written on this topic, how to determine God's will, how to answer God's call on our life. And sometimes when we talk about the call, quote unquote, people think, ah, great, only applies to a select few. This kind of a message only applies to people who give themselves full time to church work, to religious work, those weird people. That's why you call the series Things Get Weird, because weird people go into ministry. Pastors, missionaries, theologians, scholars, evangelists, it's those kind of people. So texts like this don't actually apply to me. They don't apply to the majority of ordinary, normal people. And so what I remind you of today is that there is a calling that has been set on every single person's life in this room if you claim the name of Jesus. I want to remind you of that on three levels, three things to consider. Number one, you have been called to salvation. And I want to camp here a little bit. In this sense of the word calling, it applies to every child of God. If you identify as a Christian, if you would check off that box, I'm a Christian, I'm a child of God, I'm a follower of Christ, I'm a disciple, I'm a born-again believer, whatever language you use, but you would self-identify saying, yeah, I'm in, this is my family, then you should know and understand this, that you can only claim that designation based on the fact that God has called you to it. The only way you claim that is because God gave you that designation. And we don't have time to go too far down this rabbit hole, but it is a deep one because the scriptures tell us that salvation is God's work and that calling is God's calling. And the metaphors are so many throughout the New Testament, and they are so powerful. One of the most powerful is this. When we were dead in our sin, Ephesians 2, when we were dead in our sins, God made us alive. Have you been to a funeral lately? Uh, have you noticed how much activity dead people are involved in? 
Have you seen an active dead person lately? Like dead people don't do an awful lot. Like you're staring at me like you're really weird. I get it. I'm okay. Metaphor didn't work. Dead people don't do a lot. We were dead in our sin. He made us alive. When we were trapped in darkness, he said, turn on the light. Second Corinthians four and five, the imagery there is the, the enemy has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. We're in the darkness. And, and then it says the same God who spoke light into creation speaks into our heart and says, turn the light on. Let them see, let them understand. When we were his enemies, he came looking for us. And you go, oh, shoot. Until you understand, he didn't come looking for us to crush us. He came looking for us to rescue us. When we were his enemies, he sent people to us with the gospel message to tell us this incredible story. He chisels away at the heart of stone, and he gives us a heart of flesh, the scriptures say. He opens our eyes, he unstops our ears, he gives us spiritual understanding, and for all of that, we should be having a party every day. Amen? Amen. Every day of our lives, we should be having a party. When we gather as a family in corporate settings like this, it is a major preoccupation of our worship and our praise because we're saying, oh God, what you have accomplished on our behalf. Amazing love, how can it be that you, my God, would die for me? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Tell me the old, old story of Jesus and his love. And on and on the choruses and the hymns go. That he would do for us what we were powerless to do for ourselves. It's the heart of the gospel. That he would relentlessly chase us down. That he would make it his agenda to adopt us as his sons and daughters. Called from death to life. Called from bondage to freedom. Called from fear into trust. Called from shame. And then wrapped up in the honor bestowed by the king of kings. And we should be going, woohoo! And some of you here today, I need to just pause here. Would not yet necessarily identify as a Christian. You might say, I don't know if I'm in yet. I wouldn't yet call myself that. But I'll tell you this, if your heart is being warmed at all by these thoughts, if you're curious, if you're asking spiritual questions, then the Spirit of God is at work in your heart. Because the Scriptures tell us that spiritual things can't be discerned by unspiritual minds, and so the Spirit turns the light on in the mind so you can start to discern spiritual things. So if you are starting to ask spiritual questions, if you find your heart being warmed and prodded by this and you're curious, you might as well just give up right now because God's going to get you. He has you in his crosshairs. He has already begun the work in you, and he is going to bring it to completion. He has started to woo you, and what you need to do is simply say yes. And so some of you sitting here right now today might go, I've not understood what this warming is, this curiosity is, this interest in the things of God, but I can't get away from it. And maybe today's the day where you just simply go, even right in this moment, okay, yes, Lord, I surrender. I answer your call on my life. All of us are called to salvation. Secondly, all of us are called to ministry. Every single man, woman, and boy and girl who claim the name of Jesus, if you claim to be in the family of God, then you are also in the family business. And the family business is to bring the kingdom of God to bear in the here and now as it will be in eternity. We pray it all the time. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We know we, it won't be fully realized until the culmination day when Jesus returns, sets up his kingdom. In the meanwhile, we are his ambassadors. We are agents of the kingdom. This is the family business. And we are in full-time ministry trying to bring the kingdom to bear to the best of our ability in the here and now. 
And the challenge that the people of God have faced from the beginning of time is for whatever reason, we tend to divide our lives into two categories. We think somehow of the sacred and the secular. The sacred is that part of our lives that we think matters to God, where we worship and serve and give and study and grow and make a difference for the kingdom. And then there's all the rest of our life, the quote unquote secular side of our life, our eating and drinking and going to work and this, the ordinary thing of life that doesn't really matter for the king. And I want to challenge you to consider this truth, that if you are a child of God, then you are called to full-time Christian ministry. God takes full-time servants and he disguises them. He takes full-time agents of the kingdom and he puts them in disguise, blue collar, white collar, no collar. And he sends them out like an army into every field of service. Who better to reach a teacher who is far from God than another Christian teacher who comes into that school and begins to share the love of Jesus with them? Who better to reach a grocery store clerk who's never heard of the love of God than a Christian grocery store clerk working alongside them day in and day out? Who better to reach an artist, a plumber, a truck driver, a doctor, a barista, a stay-at-home mom than someone else in that same area and season of life who comes alongside? I remember so well the, 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 the principle of salt and light, Jesus commissioning us. That's what this is all about. I was talking with the guy in between the services. Remember this season back 30 years ago, frozen up winter. I was pouring concrete. I got a job inside working at a manufactured home plant. We'd cut up lumber, load it into a container. It would get shipped to Japan and built into houses. The language on that manufacturing floor was absolutely blue. The F-bomb was everywhere. I remember loading the container one day, and I'm working with another young guy. I'm in my 20s. I think he was in his late teens, and he stops what we're loading, and he just looks at me, and he simply says this, you don't swear, and dropped it there. And I'm like, yeah, is there more to that sentence? And he's like, Why? We had a very interesting conversation as I was able to share with him. And it was interesting to me that it wasn't what I had said to him as what I hadn't said because I hadn't been dropping the F-bomb like everybody else. There's so many cool stories like this in all of our lives that we could share. God takes his full-time servants and he drops them, disguises them as salt and light. Why am I pounding that drum? Well, because I've got the pulpit. I'm pounding this drum because I have heard so many Christians dismiss texts like this. In fact, you may have already dismissed this text as we read it to say it doesn't apply to me because I'm not, I'm not called to ministry. And oh, the conversations we need to have around this topic about commissioning one another into the fields of ministry that God has given. You see, when we install a pastor, a missionary, a teacher, or whatever, often we hold these things called commissioning services. Sometimes we even anoint them. There's, there's this new wave of anointing that pastors are doing where they're literally pouring, pouring oil on elders and others being anointed. I think we need to have a commissioning for everybody. In fact, one of the things we're going to do tonight at the prayer night at Selah tonight is we're going to turn in small groups and we're literally going to lay hands on one another and commission one another into the mission fields that God is sending us. And to pray, God, from Monday morning as our feet hit the ground, as we head out into the mission field, may you use us for your honor and your glory. Okay, but it would be wrong if we didn't address the obvious. Number one, you're called to salvation. Number two, you're called to ministry. Number three, some are uniquely called to serve in the church. This is true. 
There are some that God calls to walk away from other opportunities, some like Elijah who are called to give themselves to the work of ministry as a vocational call. And why this is important to us today is because in every generation, God calls men and women to serve the family of God in unique roles. And one of the assignments of every generation is also to ask to look at the next generation and ask, who is it that God is calling this way? Who are and where are tomorrow's pastors and missionaries and Christian educators and scholars and theologians? Who 30 years from today are going to be writing Christian books that challenge our thinking and that last for generations? I was thinking it this morning as we had these families up here. Six little children and their blurry-eyed moms and dads who haven't slept in a month. And I'm wondering of those six little kids, which one of those is going to be a pastor or a missionary or write some book that changes the world 30 years from now? And we should have eyes and ears and watching for them. We know that right now in our children's wing, there are some weird little kids that God has his hand on in this particular way. Some of you have them living in your household. We had a three-year-old who told us that basically she told us she was going to live halfway around the world, that she was going to be a missionary, that she was going to live overseas. We're like, where does a three-year-old get ideas like this? Where And we began watching and seeing her path of life, and it's no shock and surprise to me that as she grows up that she marries a, a German and he drags her halfway around the world to plant churches. It's not a surprise that this little missionary girl, we should have known it when she was three years old. We should have just shipped her to Germany at the, right then because that's where she's going to end up. We already knew it. We know that of the hundreds of youth and young adults that are hanging out in programs here, that God has his hand on some of them in a particular way, and he is molding them, he is shaping them. It's maybe a minority of the group, but they are there, and we need to look for them, and we need to commission them. We need to equip them and send them out. We know some of you, midstream in a career, are sensing that God is stirring. There's a new thing coming. You don't know what it is, but God's calling you in a different way. We know as well that as we want to plant new churches, as we send out congregations and new campuses, both here in Abbotsford, replanting and planting, we know this already, that God is already preparing some of you. And it might be a year from now, it might be three years from now, it might be five years from now, but we are going to continue to ask you, would you be willing to go help start a new church? We know in advance God is already preparing some of you. He's stirring in your heart, and when the invitation comes to go and start something new, you're going to be, I'm in. This is what God has prepared me for. How do we know this? Because this is how God has worked for 2,000 years. Now, we've talked most about the individual call, and I told you it was a multiplication weekend, focusing in on the bigger picture. And so let me just take a, just a moment, because it's really a whole other focus, that if you call Northview your family, you're also part of a bigger story. The biggest application is our individual lives, but we also have a work to do that we believe God has called us corporately together, that is uniquely gifted and resourced and opened some doors for us. And specifically, it is this vision of becoming a resourcing church where leaders can be developed, where church planners can be sent out to start new works, where disciples are intentionally made. It's why we're so thrilled that there are hundreds of men and women in Bible studies every week. Why I'm so happy there are dozens of people are getting out of bed at 5 a.m. on a Thursday morning for a two-year theology class, meeting here or on the mission campus. Every September, new one starts, so if you want to get in on it, if you want to get up at 5 a.m., be here by 6 to study theology for two years to dig into the deep truths of who God is. That's why we encourage you to be part of small groups. It's why we host great training events. There are some upcoming ones, some great ones. Uh, Pastor Andy Steiger and his gang from Apologetics Canada, just next month in March, 
a conference right here, literally in this room. It's in your home church. You might as well attend it. The men's retreat in April, a family conference at the end of April, a women's retreat or conference in May. It's why we're co-hosting a national event in Vancouver, partnering with some other churches to bring Dr. Timothy Keller to Vancouver and invite leaders from all across North America to come and be spoken into about the challenge of seeing Canada transformed for the gospel. God's given us the incredible privilege together. None of us could do this alone to do it together. Let me tell you about one little cool opportunity. We try to plan once in a while, two or three times a year, some events that all of us can get involved in. Not Obviously not all 6,000, but at least several hundred of us. Mother's Day weekend, a really special event. We're simply calling it Celebrating Single Moms. To give some single moms some special attention on Mother's Day that they probably won't get because they're single moms. And so we're putting this together. You'll hear more about it in the coming days, but the whole idea is this, that Saturday morning of Mother's Day weekend that we would open this campus up for four or five hours and that single moms could come. They could get free haircuts for their kids. They could get a good meal and some loving conversation. They can get the car washed and the oil changed in the car. They might get their nails done. They might have some loving on them. You know how to change oil, guys? You can serve on that weekend. You know how to paint nails and you're willing to do it for free. You know how to cut hair and you donate four hours of your time. There'll be a sign up for all of that. Great opportunity to serve in our city. And we want to have opportunities. Like We think that we can serve up to 120 single moms that morning. And we hope and pray that the gospel of Jesus will go out because of it. It's great to be together and to talk about the things that God has called us to do together. Things that we can't do alone. It's why we replanted Mission why we took over Tri-Cities Church that had closed down. It's why 400 people left here to go to East Abbey and they're setting up and tearing down a gym every weekend. It's why this fall, Lord willing, the next opportunity in central Abbotsford. We've got a good relationship established with Abbey Free Church and they've agreed to rent us some space in their building so that we can do a Saturday night outreach in that neighborhood, building on top of the Village Kids outreach that's already happened. And and some of you, if you live in that neighborhood or you know people in that neighborhood, and if God's stirring in your heart, we would love to see you go and be part of this launch. It's why we're pursuing leadership development. Uh, Jeff calls it the farm system, single A, double A, triple A. Single A is our internship program for undergrads, students who are wanting to just get their feet wet in ministry. Double A is the master's level program. So blessed that we got 10 students right now earning their master's of divinity, a fully accredited degree in partnership with Acts Seminaries, immersed in ministry here. Our first grad class this spring of three is going to grad, and we're like, thank you. We can finally send them away. They're graduated. We've got room for 12, and we're hoping by the fall that we got a full cadre of 12 students. AAA is the next major initiative, a formalized church planning residency where we're asking God to send us couples who would come and spend a year with us and that we could send them out to plant. And Lord willing, within the next 18 to 24 months, I hope we have our first cohort of church planters going out. Now, I know I lost some of you and all that stuff. I, I, I see it. Your eyes are glazed over. Wake up. But if this is your church family, you're part of the bigger picture. In fact, every time you put a dollar in the offering plate, a few pennies go to these initiatives to make them happen. You're part of this. But I'd close it. I want to come back to Elisha's story and wrap a bow on this thing with this one critical detail. Did you notice the barbecue? How many of you noticed the barbecue? Yeah, you're hungry. I know, because it's past noon. (laughs) Elijah's call came at a high personal cost. Just a couple comments the cost to his family, 
You see, in that culture, the sun was your retirement plan. Boys were very important because there were no pension plans, no RRSPs, and so when you got too old to work and you couldn't care for yourself, it was the boys who took over the family business who took care of mom and dad in their elderly years. We don't know whether Elijah had brothers. We're not told. But he may or may not have, but nevertheless, Elisha is saying to mom and dad, I'm leaving you. I'm going off to follow this guy into ministry. In other words, in your old age, you're going to have to figure out a different way. Did his parents get a say in his call? You, you thought about that? Did they try to hold him back? Did they encourage him? Parents, let me ask you that question. Are you freeing your kids to follow the call of God, even though it might cost you as parents and cost your family something? But don't miss what else Elisha did. He lit the barbecue. Remember the oxen that he was plowing with? Remember I said he was likely a wealthy kid? He came from a family business that was doing well. It's interesting what he didn't do. He didn't give those oxen to somebody else and say, hey, just kind of watch over these for a while because I'm not sure if this ministry thing is going to work out and I want something to fall back on, so just take care of my oxen for me. He didn't set up a business partner who would take the profits from the farm and funnel them into his ministry. Instead, he burnt the bridges. He plunged into the deep end with no way back. He barbecued the beef. He shared it with the neighbors, and he took off to follow Elijah. And it's so important because over the years, I've met so many young leaders who seem to have a genuine call in their life, but when you begin to press into that call, how serious they might be, you quickly realize they're willing to follow God's call on their life so long as, so long as I get a guaranteed salary, so long as I don't have to move away from my family, so long as I can keep my kids in the same school because they're already adapted to it, so long as I get called to a church of a certain size and with a role of a certain type, so long as I don't have to adjust my lifestyle too much, I'm willing to follow you, Lord, so long as. And you see, in following God's call, there is always a cost. Last weekend, Jeff finished off with these words from Matthew 16. Jesus saying, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And I wonder if there is some, in fact, I don't just wonder, I know you're here. I don't know who you are, but I know you're here. In a crowd this size, there have to be these people. Someone here that God is calling you to light the barbecue. And you know exactly what he's speaking about. Some assets that God is asking you to walk away from. Some opportunities or other visions that he's asking you to lay aside. Some relationships that you know are going to be affected if you say yes to God's call in your life. Sacrifices God is calling you to make. And he's calling you to step out in faith, maybe not knowing if there's going to be a way back. And that is precisely what God is calling you to today. And I'm wondering, are you willing to light the barbecue? Elisha heard the call. He answered it. He obeyed it. He counted the cost. And the simple question is this, have we? Have we? Have we heard his call? Have we answered it? Are we willing to Count the cost. I want to pray for you in that regard. So let's stand together. The worship team's going to come. We're, we're going to wrap with a song that really sort of ties a bow on this thing. And the song basically says, in the good times and in the bad times, I'm going to follow you. That's the summary of it. In the good times and in the bad times, I choose to follow you, Lord. So that's going to be sort of the benediction in music. But I want to pray for each of you. Lord, you know the men and women in this room that you have called to be your sons and daughters. 
I pray, Father, that they would be celebrating that call of God in their life. As we read at the beginning of the service, by grace we've been saved, not of our works. We had nothing to do with it. It was all on Jesus. You called us to yourself, and Lord, we should be celebrating every day of our lives. May that be true in our lives. Lord, I know the majority of the men and women in this room, you have called into full-time Christian ministry out in the marketplace, in the schools and in businesses and in medicine and in sciences and in the arts, every art except country, western music, everything else, you put believers in there. You've called them to serve you 100% of the time. And Lord, I pray that you would seal that into these men and women's hearts that as they get out of bed Monday morning, they may be working in a very uh, difficult environment. They may be one of the only believers in their environment. Lord God, I pray that you would strengthen them, that you would give them faithfulness as being salt and light and living out. And it may take years of silent witness before a conversation begins. It may take years of conversation before they begin to see fruit. But God, would they be faithful in the places that you have called them to? May they bring honor and glory to your name. And then, Father, I pray for a church of our size. There have to be dozens, maybe hundreds of people that you are calling to step aside from a normal vocation and to give themselves fully into Christian ministry. And, Lord, they may not even know today the count, the, the price that they are going to have to pay. They may not even yet know the sacrifices that they will face. They may not know the spiritual battles and warfare that is going to come up against them as they step into the front line of ministry. But Father, for the little boys and girls, for the teenagers, for the adults that you are calling to yourself, may you give us as a church a heart to see them, to identify them, to bless them, to equip them, to encourage them, to send them out, and ultimately, Lord, to follow them because they are going to be our future leaders. Lord, would you bless us in this season of our lives as the history books are being lit, written that we, we would be a multiplying people. So we ask these things for your glory, for your fame, and ultimately, Lord, our great joy that follows that. In Jesus' name, amen.